Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. guest today is Professor Liran Carmel, who is a professor of computational biology at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Israel. Liran has won many awards, including the Michael Milligan Prize, the Farkash Award, and the Eshkol Fellowship. Liran is studying a host of topics in molecular evolution, RNA biology, and genetics, and is particularly interested in human evolution and in understanding the very recent evolutionary adaptations that led to the development of human-specific traits. He's among the founders, founders of uh, paleoepigenetics, a field of study where epigenetic signals are reconstructed in ancient genomes, thus allowing to obtain information on ancient gene activity patterns. Welcome, Diran. Thank you, Gil. In recent years, uh, you have been studying ancient DNA in modern humans, as well as archaic uh, humans, such as Neanderthals and Denisovans. In a recent paper, you say that recent advances in ancient DNA extraction and high-throughput sequencing technologies enable the high-quality sequencing of archaic genomes. While comparisons with modern humans revealed both archaic-specific and human-specific sequence changes, in the absence of gene expression information, understanding the functional implications of such genetic variations remains a major challenge. Uh, to study gene regulation in archaic humans, you have developed a whole area of epigenetic research. Uh, before we get into this, Liran, uh, could you lay out an kind of a approximate timeline for the evolution of the Homo genus from, say, two million years ago in Africa? Yes, so our ancestors uh, indeed arrived from Africa, and if you go back in time, two million years ago, give or take, uh, you will see uh, humans in Africa. Very shortly after, roughly at around 1.8 million years ago, there was a big event called an out-of-Africa event when people started migrating out of Africa and spreading, through, spreading yeah. throughout Eurasia and uh, forming populations that we now know as Homo erectus. Yeah. 
So these people lived in Asia and in, uh, in Georgia and in, in, in other places. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, other, other humans remained in Africa and kept on developing. Eventually, uh, there was a, another big migration event, event yeah. maybe 600,000, 700,000 years ago, where people uh, living in Africa again went out um, forming more populations in Eurasia. Yeah. And these populations eventually became the Neanderthals, the Denisovans, and those that remained in Africa became Homo sapiens. So if you would have gone back in time a hundred thousand years, you would you would have found different human populations, some of them very similar to each other, in different places of the world, those that lived in parts of Asia, Europe, and the Middle East were known as Neanderthals. Those that lived to the east were called Denisovans. Those that remained in Africa were called Homo sapiens. There were also other populations still remaining of Homo erectus. So there were, there were many, uh, many uh, different humans living around. Yeah. And then eventually, 60,000, 70,000 years ago, there was another out of Africa migration event. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time, these were Homo sapiens already spreading out and uh, interacting, meeting and interacting with uh, many of these other humans. And what happened, uh, what happened exactly is a mystery, but all the others eventually disappeared and Homo sapiens are the only humans that remained as of today. Okay, okay. So, So, so three different out of Africa events. So 1.8 million years ago, Homo erectus, 700,000 years ago, a Homo species that ultimately became Neanderthals and Denisovans. And then again, mm-hmm. uh, around 60,000 years ago, um, Homo sapiens. And right. uh, essentially all of these, um, uh, all of these mixed, I guess, right, in both Europe and Asia. Yes, yeah, so one of the one of the great achievements of, of ancient DNA is the ability to prove these uh, these mixing events between different humans yeah. by looking yeah. at their genome. So the, there were mixing between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, between Denisovans and Homo sapiens, between Denisovans and Neanderthals, and probably many more. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. And Um, so one of the technologies that that you talk about in one of your papers is uh, this called gene organizer um, and it allows you to kind of make connections between gene changes to to, to, to different organs in the body could you could you describe a little bit about that yes so um, what interests me is evolution yeah and when you do evolutionary studies, Um, it, it is very uh, common that you eventually end up with a list of genes uh, that show signals that yeah. something happened to them throughout evolution. And then the next interesting question is, what do these genes do? Yeah. What is the function? What is the function? And this is typically a very difficult uh, question. Uh, and... In order to answer it, uh, at least with regard to human evolution, we mapped genes 
to the body parts that they are known to affect if, uh, if there are some changes to their expression level. Yeah. And we do this by looking at uh, many known data sets mm -hmm. connecting human diseases, or I would say monogenic diseases. This means uh, diseases uh, that are caused by a change in single genes. Okay. Uh, so uh, we use such data sets in order to understand what is the anatomical or morphological effects of changes in certain genes. And then we were able to map genes to body parts. Yeah. And today we have a web server that you can insert a list of genes and get, you know, even in in uh, in interactive um, heat map, uh, which body parts are most like most likely to be affected by these changes in the genes. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. So the, the changes are both uh, features such as facial features as well as changes in the organs. Yes, so yeah. we, we have yeah. we have many changes of many different types. Uh, we can we can um, look at changes in the face and, and in many different other parts uh, of the human body, but, and even in things like brain. Yeah. Uh, so anything any anything that is uh, uh, is seen as a as a human phenotype of a disease condition. Yeah. This is something that can go into our tool. So if you see a brain-related phenotype or face-related phenotype or skeleton-related uh, skeleton, skeleton phenotype, all these would go into this tool. Okay, okay. So that is one of the tools that you used in this fascinating paper where you, you looked at um, what actually differentiated the modern humans uh, from Neanderthals and Denisovans, uh, history tells us that uh, Homo sapiens essentially wiped them out, uh, perhaps, um, you know, after, after some mixing, uh, maybe two to four percent of the genes, I believe, of, of modern humans are still coming from those sources, uh, but they're not here. And what, what actually uh, differentiated modern humans from them uh, has been a puzzling question. And so you approached this from an anatomical uh, perspective uh, to look at where there's you know, specific differences in Homo sapiens that allowed us to, allowed us to dominate other Homo uh, genus that were uh, around at that time. Could you talk a little bit about that paper? Yes. So indeed, as you say, understanding the differences between these human groups is one of the most, I would say, central questions today in human evolution. And um, we, we, um, we have a unique approach to this problem by looking at changes in, in gene regulation. Yeah. The thing is that if you look at phenotypic changes, in many cases, uh, they stem from changes in gene regulation, even even if not uh, accompanied by changes in gene sequence. Yeah. And uh, so, so this is a very fundamental understanding in evolutionary biology that man, many phenotypic differences may be attributed to changes in gene regulation. Mm. <clears throat> and we um, developed together with the lab of, uh, <coughs> sorry, sure, sure. of uh, uh, Professor Eran Meshorer, yeah. we developed yeah. a technique how to take ancient DNA 
that was extracted usually from bones mm -hmm. and gets a picture of, uh, epi the, uh, of the epigenetics yeah. and therefore of the gene activity patterns <clears throat> in the tissue. So since uh, DNA is, <coughs> is usually extracted from bones, mm -hmm. uh, we focused on the skeletal system. Um, so we were able to, to reconstruct the epigenetics of Neanderthals and of Denisovans mm -hmm. and of modern humans and make comparisons in bone. Yeah. And yeah. by this, trying to understand how our, anatomic, how our <clears throat> skeletal anatomy, in what ways it was different. <clears throat> and this led to several discoveries. Um, yeah, so I don't know what you want to go into. Yeah, yeah. So several discoveries. So, so one of them, one of them. Uh, so one of the hypotheses, I guess, um, if I understand this correctly, Liran, is that um, our ability, Homo sapiens' ability to speak uh, and communicate, uh, could have been a, a highly differentiating uh, attribute that allowed them to dominate uh, other. Uh, other human-like uh, species at that time. And this is one thing that you investigated, right? Yes. So um, this is one of, again, uh, when, when you look at our history, you see that at a certain point, Homo sapiens came out of Africa. Yeah. We know that we interacted and overlapped uh, temporally and geographically with Neanderthals and with Denis Denisovans. Yeah. Yeah. And then they disappeared. And you have many theories trying to uh, figure out why uh, these other human groups disappeared and we survived. And there can be many reasons for this. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the hypotheses was that maybe we could speak and they could not. Maybe we developed language and they did not. So developing language has, of course, a, a dramatic uh, fitness effect because it allows for community for communicating uh, abstract ideas and make plans and uh, achieve collaboration between a large number of individuals. So th this, if you have a language ability and other human groups do not, then this would clearly be a very big advantage. However, the answer to this question is unknown. Yeah. It is still unknown even now, even after our own work. But uh, we looked uh, at this question from an anatomical perspective. So when we did <clears throat> our work on comparing the, the gene activity patterns between archaic humans and modern humans, yeah. Uh, we indeed looked at this tool that we have been talking about, gene organizer, to see these genes that have a different activity pattern, what body parts they affect. And it was unexpected for us that we found the highest, the strongest enrichment, yeah. very, very significant enrichment of these genes in the voice box. Right. Basically suggesting that... Uh, genes that changed in their regulation only in modern humans tend to be very significantly related to our voice box, which led us to indeed investigate uh, these questions related, related to voice box anatomy. 
Right. And what? Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. And when you look at this question, <clears throat> if you compare the anatomy of our voice box to that of chimpanzee, mm -hmm. uh, which is a well, which is well studied, uh, you see uh, that there are quite major differences. In particular, in two ways. Yeah. First, our face are retracted, mm -hmm. and chimpanzee face are much more protruding. Right. And second, our larynx has a descent, dropped down yeah. Uh, yeah. during evolution. And these two uh, changes make our geometrical shape of the voice box very different from that of chimpanzee. And so the question is, if you look at Neanderthals or if you look at Denis at Denisovans, uh, on this spectrum with one end are modern humans and on the other end chimpanzee, where do they lie here? Are they identical to us or not? And as far as anatomy goes, I think we are able to answer this question and to say that they are not uh, at the same uh, end of the spectrum as we are. Yeah. Their anatomy is not identical uh, to us. There, there are differences. And the genes uh, that, that we identify, we, we identified a number of genes uh, that are likely to have been in the basis of these two processes on uh, pushing the face backwards and on uh, making the larynx lower. Right, right. So we, we, we believe to have identified the genetic network that is responsible for this change, and we show that these changes happened after we split from the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. So, whereas their uh, voice box is likely to still be very different from that of chimpanzee, it is still not identical to ours. Yeah. And let me just add to this the fact that we cannot observe the structure of the voice box from fossils because voice box is made you typically of soft tissues, mainly muscles and cartilage, and which do not survive too much time after death. So today we don't have uh, this information available just by looking at, you know, pale paleontological remains. Yeah. So, um, so, so the way that you got to that then is through, um, so DNA methylation um, and and, and related effects as DNA degrade. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the, the, the underlying mechanism by which you reach these conclusions? Yes, so uh, I told you that we, we have a way to look at gene activity patterns. And the way we do it is that we are able to reconstruct uh, something that is called DNA methylation. Yeah. So, yeah. so if you look at DNA, DNA is uh, is, a, is a very long string made of four basic molecules that are called bases, uh, denoted A, C, G, and T. Mm -hmm. However, sometimes it is uh, easier to think on DNA, at least, you know, on, on human DNA, as, as if it is made of five letters and not four, because the letter C yeah. can be in two, in two flavors. Mm. It can go through a chemical modification known as methylation, or it can be uh, unmethylated. Yeah. 
So, uh, so a C can be methylated or unmethylated, and it has two flavors. And this is called DNA methylation. And now you can look at our genome and look at all these positions that potentially can be methylated. And there are several, you know, limitations. We know exactly which position can and which cannot be methylated. Yes. So you can look at all these positions and you can measure what's the level of methylation in these positions. And you get the map. And this map is called a DNA methylation. Yeah. And it turns out that this map is very informative with respect to gene activity. And the, the rule of thumb, the, the general trend is that if you look at the, uh, uh, at the region just before a gene starts, this region is called a, a promoter. So if you look at the methylation in the promoter, if it has high methylation, the gene is typically silenced because the methylation, uh, you can think of it as preventing from proteins that activate the genes to arrive. Yeah. However, usually if the gene is active, the promoter is unmethylated. So if you know the methylation status, in different parts of the genome, you can say which genes were silenced and which were not. Now, in order to get to this DNA methylation, uh, we used special properties of ancient DNA. And the thing is that when DNA ages, two, yeah. main, two main things happen. First, yeah. it becomes fragmented more and more with time. Mm -hmm. But second, it also uh, goes through chemical degradation. It's called deamination. And when this happens, it means that one letter of the DNA loses its identity and becomes another letter. Mm. And this happens to C, right. to, to the same letter C that can be methylated or not methylated. And uh, it's, you know, it's our luck that these degradation patterns work a little bit differently on C's that are methylated and on C's that are not methylated. And we are what we were able to do is to look at the ancient DNA sequence and capture this signature of these small differences in the way the degradation process works. And by this, to, to say every specific C, if it were methylated or unmethylated, uh, pre-mortem. Okay, okay. So, so when you look at um, archaic genomes and Homo sapien, Homo sapien genomes, um, ours has a higher level of methylation. Is that, is that true? Uh, no, the no. total level of methylation is 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 the same. It's very similar. Okay. So, so if you look at the at the big picture, it's very similar. And even if you look at specific regions of the genome. I, let's say 99% of them, we would have the same DNA methylation pattern. So all is very similar. And what we were interested is in this background of very high similarity, as you expect, because we are after all very, very uh, close evolutionary. Yeah. On the background of this similarity, we wrote an algorithm to identify those specific regions where you do see significant differences in methylation. Oh, I see. Yeah. And, and those regions were very specific to, in this particular thing, uh, very specific to the, the phase geometry, the facial geometry, as well as the vocal tract. Yes. So when you look at these regions, you can, 
you can uh, associate them with the genes that are affected, means the, with the genes whose regulation has changed. And these genes are, as you say, very much enriched in, 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 the, in the face and in particular in the voice box. Okay, okay. And I believe um, there, is, there is a human disease, right, that makes this even more pronounced? Yes. So um, one, of the, one of the key genes that we've been looking at is called NFIX. It, this is a, a very important genes in the development of the face, the voice box, and even other skeletal parts. And there is a human disease. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, um, it called the Marshall-Smith syndrome, mm -hmm. which happens because of malfunctioning of this gene. Mm -hmm. And um, amazingly, when we look at, uh, at, the at the phenotypes associated with this disease, we see, um, we see an extreme example of the processes that's, that, uh, that happen in humans. So the thing is that what we see is that the uh, expression level of this gene in human, in modern human, is reduced. Yeah compared to Neanderthals and the, the Nisovans. And this reduction, what we claim is that it leads to more retraction of our face, as is known uh, from the fossil record and to the descent of the larynx. Now, if you look at these individuals that have this uh, Marshall-Smith syndrome, for these individuals, the expression of this gene is even lower than in normal humans. And in, in these people, you see an even more extreme retraction of the face, and you see um, different kinds of malformations of the uh, of, of the voice box. Right, right. And I believe you also did some experiments in mice models, right? Um, uh, to, to look at what happens there. Yes, we did, and we have uh, very many indications that these mice, um, which have these are mice where this gene, where NFIX was eliminated. Yeah. Uh, and in these mice, we see changes in the, in the voice box um, architecture and maybe even other changes. This is, we are still working to quantify uh, the other changes that we see related to speech production. And we, we do see, uh, we do see effects. Yeah, so that is supporting the same conclusion. So the, the general conclusion you reach is that the widespread hypermethylation in a network of face and voice associated genes uh, seems to have made a difference uh, for Homo sapiens uh, in their ability to, 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 to speak and, uh, and subsequently create a language um, and have a higher level of communication capabilities that allow them to dominate um, the archaic humans that might have existed along with them? Um, well, I, I wouldn't say uh, uh, like this because what we, what we claim and what we show in the paper is that the anatomy of our, of our voice box is not identical. Yeah. We cannot say whether they could, you know, uh, develop language or not. This is 
whether they they had the same range of sounds or a similar range of sounds which they could produce mm. it's very likely that they were able to produce a, a very large range of sounds probably comparable to our maybe they could have developed language i don't know we, we cannot say this we we can only say that it's not identical the, right. the anatomy right. is not identical yeah but comparisons to chimpanzees though um uh, would you say the the Neanderthals and Denisovans uh, vocal tract is more similar to the chimpanzees compared to Homo sapiens? No, it, no. it is more similar to Homo sapiens because okay. you see okay. this, these processes of uh, face retraction, uh, they are also apparent in Neanderthals. There's no not to the same extreme as we see it in in modern humans. I see. I see. Okay, so it's a it's a gradation. Um, exactly. Okay. Okay. It's and, a, a gradient of changes. Right. Right. And you have done similar things to look at other features, right? Um, chin, hair, uh, and even the spinal column. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we have been looking at all these uh, body parts that are uh, where, where we see that are enriched with these genes that work differently in modern humans. This includes uh, many other parts of the skeletal system. Mainly, we see changes related to the face, yeah. like forehead. Um, we, see, we see changes related to teeth. We see changes related to pelvis, which is known to be different morpho morphologically in, in modern humans. We see interesting things like nails, for example, that also seem to be enriched. Uh, which is, you know, this still calls for an answer. Why, why nails? Yeah. But we do see it. Yeah, yeah. And and the beauty is that um, you also have the corresponding uh, differentially mutilated genes, right? That that might be impacting these these feature changes. Yes, exactly. So our work on a on the methylation allows us to identify these genes where you see differential methylation, and these are the genes that for which we check all these enrichments. Well, where do they, or, or which body parts do they tend to affect most? Right, right. Um, so in another paper, uh, Luran, you know, you looked at uh, inferring past environments from ancient epigenomes. So yeah, this is, again, a similar process, and you are creating some hypotheses around the environments that archaic uh, humans might be uh, might have been living. Excuse me, can, can you repeat the last question? Yeah, so that the paper entitled Inferring Past Environments from Ancient mm -hmm. Epigenomes. Could you, mm -hmm. could you say a little bit about that paper? Yes. So if you look at... at your DNA methylation. Yeah. In many parts of your genome, your DNA methylation is very stable. Mm -hmm. However, there are parts where methylation is responsive to what you experience in your own life. Yeah. If tomorrow you are going to change your lifestyle, if you are going to change your diet, if you are going to change the time zone where, where you are living, the, the climate, and so on and so forth, there will be a specific 
regions in the genomes that would respond to these changes. Mm. And nowadays, people try to, to map these regions and to see how they change in relation to different stimuli that, that you get. For example, if you get medications, how would that affect your methylation? If you are if you change your diet, how would that affect your methylation? And you start mapping these changes. Yeah. What we what we suggest to do is to inverse the logic. Instead of changing your environment and study how it affects your methylation, look at the methylation of these ancient humans yeah. and see what it tells you about, about their environment. Mm. So basically we use uh, our ability to reconstruct DNA methylation as a sensor for the environment for the environment in which these ancient individuals lived. Right, right. And, and could you make some conclusions from the, from the data that you have in terms of diseases or nutrition or anything like that? Yes. So um, when we proposed this idea, yeah. and, and actually this is the same and still now, uh, data is very limited in the sense that the number of sites where you have a precise quantification of how the methylation changes mm -hmm. as a response as a response to environmental change is very limited. Yeah. Uh, but we nevertheless were able to make uh, a demonstration of the approach, and we did it for for uh, hunger. Mm. So the thing is that uh, in in another work, not not related to our own work. Researchers studied um, DNA methylation in, in a modern-day population in Gambia, in Africa. Yeah. And this, this is a rural, rural population, and they live in an environment where they have half a year with uh, plenty of food supplies mm -hmm. and half a year when they are more uh, restricted in the calorie intake. And what they did, the researchers, they looked at the DNA methylation of babies conceived during each of these two periods. Right. And they found certain differences, which is very interesting because this means that you were able to change, to map, sorry, uh, difference in calorie availability mm -hmm. to specific loci in the genome or the specific uh, DNA specific DNA methylation in these loci and what we did is uh, we looked at these specific regions in the genome how the methylation looks there in Neanderthals and in the Nisovans and even in other uh, ancient homo sapiens that still lived as hunters and gatherers yeah and what we were able to show is that their DNA methylation pattern is very similar to the one that you observed in babies that were conceived during the hungry season, mm -hmm. during, when mm -hmm. the mothers were more restricted in their calorie intake, which mm -hmm. I think it's very illuminating about how their lifestyle might have looked like. Right, right. And and in the long run, uh, that also has uh, implications for 
migration and even evolution, right? Uh, right, right. So um, it is uh, the changes in in DNA methylation and in epigenetics in general are considered like the first layer yeah. of evolutionary changes. They are the first to respond. This is a faster, a much faster response to changes than the DNA sequence. Right, right. Did you find any any specific diseases, uh, diseases related things? Yes. So. Uh, when you look at, at the list of genes that are associated with um, uh, differential methylation in modern human, you see enrichment in, uh, in disease-related genes. And in particular, if you look at these disease-related genes, uh, roughly one-third of them are related to neuro neurodegenerative diseases. Mm. Okay. Like like uh, Alzheimer and you know I would say even psychiatric diseases. They are uh, they are related to autism. They are related to schizophrenia. Yeah. So so this suggests several. I would say this suggests an interesting hypothesis, but we, which still has to be um, you know confirmed and studied. But it might be that recent changes in genes, in, in the human brain, uh, maybe they led to differences in cognition between us and archaic humans, but they might also have side effects in the form of these diseases that we see uh, quite common today in modern human populations. Yeah, there, there was a hypothesis, Liran, I don't know if, uh, if there is any sufficient data on this, but um, ADHD, for example, which uh, most humans have to some level, actually was very useful uh, to to act, you know, to, to make humans more um, exploration based, right? Um, yes, you know, uh, and so I wondered, you know, things like that, slight changes um, in, in the CNS system actually led to uh, led to you know their ability to explore more than others and and subsequently uh, dominate the other species as well well that that will may be a, a, a hypothesis indeed but <clears throat> it's it's difficult to prove this of course but but yes this is a, a very um, a very reasonable hypothesis yeah yeah another another um, thing that I have read is you know, Homo sapiens were a lot more aggressive and uh, and perhaps less empathetic uh, compared to the Neanderthals, and and so you know, in, in head-to-head combat, so to speak, <laughs> uh, they 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 wipe them out. Uh, and again, I don't know, I don't know if these are testable hypotheses, but uh, but if there are changes, it, yeah, go ahead, sorry. It, Yes, in, in some way, the, they are testable in, in certain ways. Uh, first of all, you, you can compare human societies with chimpanzees, for example, and compare the level of aggression, yeah. which is indeed reduced considerably and very significantly in humans. Mm. Uh, but there is a theory that we, we did not invent or anything, but this is a known theory, um, that is called self-domestication. And the idea is that if you look at domestication processes, mm -hmm. 
um, that happened, uh, you know, throughout the world. You people have domesticated many kinds of animals. Yeah. So yeah. One of the main selective forces in these domestication processes is reduce reduced aggression. Mm. And what is very uh, remarkable is that if you look at all these domesticated animals, many of them show shared traits, even even uh, even though they were domesticated in you know independent processes, they still show shared phenotypes. For example, many of them show uh, retracted faces, lower mm. teeth. Floppy ears and and many such features that are shared by many domesticated animals. Yes. Now, even more remarkable than this is that many of these traits you do see in modern humans. Yeah. <laughs> really. leading, le leading to the hypothesis that the, that is called self-domestication, that basically there was a selection towards reduced aggression mm. in modern humans enabling us to build larger societies and larger communication networks, yeah. which we see uh, as a self-domestication. And you can look at genes related to these domestication processes, and by looking at these genes, this hypothesis is testable, but it's it's not easy, of course. This is a great challenge. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, so in conclusion, Laurent, you know, what are you working on without obviously revealing any secrets uh, from unpublished papers? But uh, in the next uh, few years, uh, what are the major areas that you are working on? Yeah, so we, we, have, uh, we have many different projects um, running in the lab. Uh, some of them uh, try to look at other types of gene regulation of changes that might have affected our, you know, appearance, behavior, and made us different from alkyl humans that are not DNA methylation. So we have other ideas on, on how to do it. Oh. And another thing is uh, uh, that we do in the lab is that we try to go beyond bones. So one of the main limitations is that if you look at DNA methylation, this is tissue specific. Yeah. So if the DNA, the ancient DNA comes from bones, you are more or less restricted to say what happened to the genes in bones or in the skeletal system. Mm -hmm. Now, if we want to say more about other systems in the body, we need to develop new tools for this. And part of our work is aimed towards this goal. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, as data, as more and more data is available, there are, uh, you know, just similar to your gene organizer product, uh, that's going to get even better, I would imagine, right, as we gather more information. Exactly. We would have more information going on gene organizer. Maybe we will have more genomes of ancient humans sequenced. So all these pieces of information would allow us to make final and final observations. Yeah. Yeah, this has been uh, great, Liran. Uh, uh, I really appreciate the time that you spend with me. And uh, good Thank luck with uh, all the research you're doing. Thank you, Gil. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.